Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Hernan Casa. He is a managing partner and co-founder of Kazek Ventures, the largest venture capital firm in Latin America with over $1 billion of raised capital. The firm was launched in 2011 and has invested in more than 75 startups. Prior to Kazek, Hernan co-founded Mercado Libre, the largest technology company in Latin America, which is also listed on the NASDAQ stock market with a current market cap of over $43 billion. Here, he worked for 12 years, nine as COO and three as CFO. Mr. Casa holds an undergraduate degree in economics from the University of Buenos Aires and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And now, Let's listen to an aligning conversation with the unique Hernan Casa. Welcome, Hernan, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your personal background? Thank you, Miguel, and great to be here. Really great to be sharing our experience and story with your audience and, and listeners. So my story and, and, and background, I will try to, to put uh, over 20 years in two minutes. I started my career in technology as co-founder and COO of Mercado Libre, the leading marketplace and payments platform in Latin America, and now a few other things because the company then got into logistics and lending and many other sectors. We started Mercado Libre in 1999, right after graduating from Stanford from our MBA, Marcos Galperin, who's still the CEO of the company, uh, was my classmate at Stanford and he was thinking about starting eBay in Latin America. Uh, and I was also working with some ideas around technology, ended up joining Marcos in the startup of Mercado Libre. So we graduated, went back to Buenos Aires, and started the company there, and very rapidly we expanded it throughout Latin America. The plan was always to build a regional platform, mainly because at the time we realized that in Argentina there were not enough users, internet users, to try to sustain an e-commerce business. When we launched, internet penetration in the region was roughly 3%, and it was mostly dial-up. Uh, most of your listeners may not know what Dialab was, but it was a very slow connectivity that we had through phone lines. And uh, e-commerce was completely unknown in the region. So we, we really uh, had to be patient, not only in building the business, but also in waiting for the infrastructure and the users and e-commerce to gain some ground in in the region. So as I was saying, 1999, we, we launched the company, expanded it throughout Latin America, 
we followed more or less the, the typical Silicon Valley story, which is not that typical in Latin America, and it was definitely not that typical at that time in Latin America. And we went through a couple of financing rounds, and then we, we also had a strategic player that joined the company. Actually, it was eBay, who became a close to 20% investor in the company. And then in the year 2007, we went public in the NASDAQ. The company kept on evolving. At that time, it was already a relatively sizable business, but nothing compared to what the company is today, whose market capitalization is over 40 billion. And in the first uh, nine years, I was the COO of the company. And then I, I became CFO of the company as the original CFO decided to, to leave the company. And actually, the original CFO is today my partner and co-founder at Kasek Ventures. So the stories are always interconnected. Um, and when Nicolas decided to, to leave Marco Libre, I became the CFO. I thought it was a great experience to be the CFO of a publicly traded company. So I became the CFO and in 2011, I also decided to leave Marco Libre. It was an amazing story. And at the time we left, the company was worth roughly $5 billion. Today is $40 billion. So the team created much more value after <laughs> we left. So they did a better job without us than with us. Uh, but those uh, initial years were, were amazing and with many ups and downs and everything that you can imagine, uh, starting a company in tech in Latin America and during the internet bubble and then the bubble burst. So whatever you can think of happened in that story. But luckily, it really became a great story. And as I was saying, we I stayed there for 12 years and then the company kept on evolving in an amazing way. And today is one of the largest companies in Latin America, no, not only in technology. And in 2011, we decided to start Kasek Ventures with Nicolas Sekasi. The idea was to try to bring the venture capital concept to Latin America. And over the years in Mercado Libre, we got to know many of the great VCs that operate in the Silicon Valley. And the realization was that the kind of investors that we had in Latin America were very different. Some of those were, were, were good people, very capable professionals, but not with the kind of tech focus or, or maybe with the, the kind of former operational tech experience that many of the venture capitalists do have in, in Silicon Valley. So the kind of help that we got from our investor was limited versus the kind of help that we thought we could provide to entrepreneurs given that we had operated a company for, for 12 years and had gone from many of the challenges and pains that entrepreneurs have to go through. So uh, with that in mind, we started Kasek Ventures. The idea was to start with a small fund, putting together our capital plus a few of our friends' capital and get started with $50 million. We thought that that was the minimum reasonable size to get some exposure, to get our feet wet, 
Uh, but as we started with the process, many people learned that we were racing, and because of the Mercalier story and because of prior connections with them, they, they wanted to invest. So the first fund ended up being close to $100 million. Out of that fund, we invested in 24 companies. The idea was to invest early, so seed, series A, maybe series B, in any sector. So for us, the driving element uh, was, number one, an extraordinary founding team, and number two, something tech-related within Latin America. I think those were kind of the, the big, big ideas that we put in our mandate. We basically wrote it ourselves, right? But just to remain disciplined, we define, defined those items and we felt that we could really help companies that somehow fulfilled those requirements. So fast forwarding a little bit and then we can go deeper into anything you, you want, Miguel. In, then in 2014, we raised our second fund, slightly larger. 135 million dollars then in 2017 we raised our third fund was a, a fund of 200 million dollars and then last year 2019 we raised two funds another early stage fund so our fourth fund for 375 million dollars and on top of that we raised $225 million for an opportunity fund with the idea of investing in later stage rounds in the companies of our own portfolios. So that, that's the story of fundraising. Obviously, we, we ended up investing so far in, in more than 70 companies. We probably have active 40 companies in our portfolios. We, we sold some. Some were acquired, some went down, obviously, as it's part of the story. And a few more things. One is we try to be really close to the entrepreneurs, again, with this idea of using our operational experience to try to connect with the entrepreneur and not only offer capital, but also offer strategic advice in any discussion. And on top of that, also operational advice around technology, around user acquisitions around uh, the, the infrastructure stack, things where at least we can add an educated uh, opinion. At the end of the day, the decision is of the founder, but we, we like to have founders that at least listen to what others have to say. So they have to be good listeners, but then at the same time, that they are uh, very self-confident and make their own decisions. Uh, our team grew. We started with Nicolás, then very rapidly Santiago Fossati joined, and today he's uh, one partner also in our firm. He's based in Sao Paulo. Then Nico Berman, who was also part of the Mercolibre Mafia, joined also as a partner. And we have uh, Andy Yang, an American that we imported from China. He's uh, also one of our our partners. And then we have uh, other people in the team that are very resourceful in helping us in the different processes that we conduct around pipeline research or company, portfolio company management, 
and those kind of things. And so far we've invested most of our capital in Brazil, not because we wanted that, but because that was where we found the, the most attractive opportunities, the most attractive entrepreneurs. And then we, lately we've been investing more and more in Mexico. That is another market that is gaining in, in relevance in the region. So I would say probably close to 70% must have been Brazil, close to 20 Mexico, and then Colombia, Argentina, Chile are, are the markets that come after. I'll stop there, Miguel, and I'll, I'll let you take this to wherever you want. Oh, that's fascinating. And there's so much to unpack there. So I appreciate you giving us that very detailed intro. How about we start by zooming in to your portfolio? I understand that a large percentage of your portfolio is fintech focused. Was this a strategy that you set out from the beginning? Was uh, financial, the financial sector a sector that you actively looked at at the very beginning? Oh, that, that's a great uh, question. And as I just said, we focus on technology. So it was not that we said we want to go after fintech. Having said that, obviously we, we knew that within fintech, we could see many of the kind of dynamics that we like in, in businesses. Uh, and those were mainly around the opportunity, the disruption that technology was creating in that market. And some of those are one, obviously, in most uh, financial businesses, you need to assess the quality of the customer, right? And if it's a high quality customer, you, you may assume that it is credit worthy. And because of that, you're willing to provide credit or to provide credit at better conditions or provide more capital versus what you were providing in the past. And, and with technology, we think that you can get access to more data, you can be more intelligent in processing that data, et cetera, and make better decisions around credit risk, which is one of the main pillars of any financial service. The other one is the capacity to reach out to customers in a very efficient way. As you know, typically in the financial service, the acquisition cost quite heavy in the PNL of any uh, financial institution. And then they end up making money because once they acquire a customer, that customer tends to stay in the system for a long time. But the initial cost of getting that right customer is, is really high. And through technology, obviously you can try to get to that customer in a much more efficient way. So that was another big advantage that technology brought to that segment. Then you have also the low penetration that financial services have in Latin America. And obviously that low penetration is really related to the fact that it's expensive to reach those customers, the fact that it's difficult to really assess the quality of those customers. So with technology, we thought that you could uh, improve significantly the penetration of financial services in the in the region because you were going to be able to do many things more efficiently. 
And then something that we always like of technology is this idea of building a platform that is scalable. So obviously, to get started, you need minimum base. And that minimum base might be expensive for the size of your business initially. But as you keep on adding users, traction, transactions to that platform, costs tend to grow at a lower pace versus that top line growth. Uh, and, and when that happens, obviously it's similar to what happened in our case with, with Mercado Libre. Once you reach a certain scale, you start becoming very efficient, very profitable because every extra transaction, every extra user that you have on top of that platform has very low marginal cost and lots of incremental income. So, so lots of the dynamics that we, we like in technology were there, they are still there. And obviously, it's not that we said we're going to go after this business, this sector, this industry, because we see all that dynamic. But what ends up happening is that good entrepreneurs realize that those opportunities exist, and they are the ones that start building businesses because of that. And that's how we end up investing there, because we come across those amazing entrepreneurs that have realized that big opportunity and are building solutions to address uh, those needs, to address those markets. So you're totally right. We ended up making lots of fintech investments. It's probably our largest sector. I think more than one third of our investments went into fintech, but it's uh, not something that we planned initially. It's not that we said we want to be a fintech fund. We want to be a technology fund. And it happens to be the case that technology is having a significant impact in financial services because of all the reasons we've just uh, discussed. So, so yes, yeah, so, and we look forward to continuing investing in financial services. Actually, we're now building the portfolio of our fourth fund, our fourth early stage fund. And I think so far it's been half fintech, half other businesses. That's impressive. So you mentioned, obviously, your very, very clear focus on finding the best teams. Has your methodology and your approach to finding these teams evolved over time, given that you've, uh, you've almost have a decade of running Kazakh? Yeah, it's going to be nine years uh, soon. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, I still have 12 years of Margolio and nine of Kazakh. At one point, it will be more years with Kazakh probably. But yeah, no, that, that's another great question. We tend to be quite humble and, and, and like to be low profile and like to approach always problems with the angle of what are all the things that we don't know. So, and, and that's typically the way we, we, we conduct ourselves, not only in business, but in everything that we do. And, and that's permeates very naturally in, in things that Nicolas does, that I do, that the rest of the team does. It's very related to the kind of culture that also Marco Libre has. So I'm saying that because I want to frame my answer, saying that we tend to be people quite humble and try to always put on the table all the things we, we don't know. Having said that, when we decided to start Kasek Ventures, we thought that because we had been relatively successful entrepreneurs we could be great investors and thought that we understood really well how to uh, form a portfolio, 
and, and how to advise entrepreneurs in their journeys. Uh, in particular, we thought that we could evaluate really, really well where to invest, where not to invest, etc. As we started doing it, I would not say that we committed significant mistakes because our first fund is doing really, really well. So on average, things worked out really well, but we, we did make uh, lots of mistakes. And many of those are, are around uh, team selection. And because of our experience with Nagalia, we always knew that the team was the most fundamental piece in a startup. Because you're always trying to imagine how the future will look like. And no matter how great of a forecaster you are, you're going to get lots of things wrong. And the value of the team is exactly they are reacting on those things that end up being different and transform those differences in opportunities and not in things that will eventually kill your business. So the team is very important. And with that in mind, we set the bar, say, hey, this is an amazing team, and whatever is above that, we will consider it. And looking back now, at that first portfolio, all the teams were, were good. So it's not that we ended up backing weak teams, but I'd say that today probably you know, at least a third of those teams would not make the cut. So we increased our kind of level of requirements there because we realized that the team is almost everything. I'm exaggerating a little because obviously there are other things that you have to look into, like the market they're going after and what kind of technology can be developed in that market to try to create a long-term mode and those kind of things. But, but the team is, is fundamental because the team is there and the market is not the right one. They may correct course and then go after a larger market or if the team is great and, and, and the platform they're building doesn't have the kind of dynamic that builds competitive advantages, they will find a tweak here or there and eventually build that. But if the team is not there, no matter how great uh, the market is, how amazing the potential competitive advantage is, they will never be able to either address that market and conquer it or to produce the technology needed to get a, a hold onto that competitive advantage. So, so the team is something that we adjusted significantly. And another thing related to that is, I remember, as I told you in our first fund, it was mainly ourselves and friends and, and family, if you will. But at the very end of our fundraising process, when we were just closing the fund, a fund of funds, so a professional organization, well-known, learned about us, and somehow they connected with us and said, hey, we've heard about you, we, we like to invest in emerging managers, in emerging general partners, or so we'd like to invest in your fund. And we, with Nicolas, we thought about it because it was our first fund. We didn't want to have much bureaucracy in the management of the fund. So we hesitated, but then we, we said, at the end of the day, what we want long-term is to build a firm uh, that is similar to those successful firms in the Silicon Valley, that regardless of who's in charge, they can really transition from one generation of GPs to another one and keep on helping amazing entrepreneurs build amazing companies. So we said probably bringing this LP on board will help us get started with the right food, will help us put in place the right control, the right mechanism, maybe even learn a few things that we don't know about it. So we decided to bring them in. And I remember that in one of the first discussions with them, they were saying, 
So, so what, what's your guess about the return of your fund? And we showed them our beautiful Excel spreadsheet that said that our fund was going to return three to four times. We learned that that was more or less what puts you in, in the top 10% of funds. Uh, and we wanted to be there. So we, we created, obviously, doing some back engineering, uh, what we needed to produce to be in that top performing group. And the way we created that model was we had, I don't know, probably a third of the companies going under, and then a third of the companies producing average returns, and then a third of the companies producing relatively good returns. And when you would look at the consolidated result of the fund, it was three, four times its capital. So great, we're happy with that, and we're convinced that that was the case. And when we showed this to this fund, they said, amazing the math, but this is not how this industry works. The industry, it's all about the outliers. It's all about that one or two companies that you find in each fund. And that company is the one that will drive 95% of the return of those two companies are the ones that are going to command 95% of return. And the rest are rounding errors. If you get some good one, good, it will add a little bit more to the return. If you don't, so be it, but, but it does, you know, you don't understand this, you don't understand Latin America. We've been operating here. We know what it takes to build successful companies. So everything that I said at the beginning that we were very humble and, and that we always uh, listen to others, uh, that was not what happened in that uh, meeting. Actually, if you ask me, I think I, I thought that they were testing us. You know, when you're pushing someone and trying to create a counter argument, to see if they really believe in what they are saying. Right. So we remain there with a stronghold, you know, this is the way it works here, etc. They ended up investing, uh, but I think we, we did not convince them. And then I remember that two or three years after that meeting, we went back to them and told them, you were absolutely right. This industry is all about the outliers. Our first fund has three companies that are doing well and 98% of the returns will come from those three companies. And if you take the top one, which is this company, Nubank, in Brazil, which is the most amazing company that we've seen emerge in Latin America in the last decade, probably that company is commanding, I don't know, uh, the largest part of that 98%. So, so really, uh, it's all about the outliers. And then if we look at, at our second fund, because we learned about the entrepreneurs, as I told you, I think we ended up creating a better fund. So out of the 22 names we have there, I think that we have five, six potential fund makers. Really, that probably would end up being three, right, at, at the end of that story. So again, the concentration happens. And fund three is newer, so we need to wait a couple of years. For now, all things look very promising. But I'm sure the same phenomenon will happen and Yes, we did learn many things along the way around how to select a team, what matters there, and, and then if you want, we can deeper into that because it's a day-long conversation, that one. And also we learned about the end of the day, the portfolio needs to be formed in a way where you have to make sure you don't miss potential winners. And maybe in that process, you end up taking some not-so-great company, right? Because at the end of the day, if you invest in a company and the company doesn't go as, as expected, you end up losing the amount of money you invested there. 
come which it's, it's a large check like you look at it and then oh we lost 10 million dollars fine but if you miss a winner maybe what you miss is a billion dollars because that, that's the upside that those kind of companies can produce so the downside is limited to the amount of money invested in the company and the upside is really unlimited and that is what creates that huge concentration that you see in venture capital because it's really at the end of the day the option value of each of those investments that, that you make and the theory of options the value comes exactly out of that completely outlying low probability return that ends up happening and that is what <laughs> makes you know, Black and Scholes have, have written a lot about it, uh, and it comes from exactly that potential upside. So, so that's something that, that we, we learned over the, the years. And the last point uh, on this one is another thing we learned is that, obviously, because we are former entrepreneurs, we somehow get emotionally connected with each of our entrepreneurs. So when things start to go through rough terrain and things do not go as planned, our kind of intuition, our kind of nature is to go and try to help those entrepreneurs solve those problems because that's what, what entrepreneurs do. They solve problems, right? And you try not to lose anybody. And when you manage a fund, obviously, you have to take care of everyone because first, that's the right thing to do. Second, that's the way you end up building a good reputation in the market. But then at the same time, if you look at the return of the fund, what you need to do is to try to invest your time wisely, to dedicate more time to those companies that continue to have that amazing optionality value. And, and that's something that, that we had to learn the hard way because initially we wanted to help everyone. And maybe the companies that were demanding more time were the ones that were showing less and less upside because were the ones that were going down and had to lay off people, etc. And our nature was, okay, let's help them. And you have to hold your horses there a little bit. Probably help them, but, but hold your horses a little bit and try to help more those that are doing great. So if you can improve their upside 2%, those that are doing great, your impact to the fund is much larger than changing completely the, the, the life of a company that is going under and instead of losing everything, you lose half of it. That makes absolute sense. It's interesting that your most successful investment is actually a fintech company. Uh, not only is Nubank the largest neobank in Brazil or LATAM, but it's also the largest neobank in the world by many standards, at least if you look at the, the number of users. Curious to know about your fintech portfolio's performance during the COVID crisis that we're currently experiencing. Has, in many ways, I understand it actually has enhanced the fintech story and is actually helping the value proposition be uh, better understood, but in other ways, of course, uh, it's it can be a big blow. So, tell us a little bit about your fintech portfolio during these times of crisis. Sure. So today, as I said, we have roughly forty active companies. In that group of companies, we have everything. Any situation you can imagine is there. So, for instance, we have companies in the hospitality space companies that are related to the tourism industry. And those, in terms of top line, are suffering big time because week on week, they've seen the revenues go down from 100 to zero or to 10 or 20. So 
really a tremendous shift one one week to the next and those are combined that are suffering some of those luckily have a strong balance sheet so they can wait until the sun shines again they can keep on working on on things that will make sense in the future some of them may even try to reshape a little bit their business model so they can adapt to what the, the new norm might be etc so but those that's a group that in terms of their plans for the year, their plans changed completely. It's upside down, the situation. We have another extreme with companies more in, in the e-commerce space, companies related to e-education, to telemedicine, and those companies are thriving. Because obviously demand went to the roof and their plans are also no longer valid, but because of the exact opposite situation, because you know, they were planning to double demand and demand is four times. So obviously they need to invest behind that and work around product and other things to be able to serve the incredible demand that they're having. And then most companies, I would say that probably 15% is in that travel group. 15% are in that really incredible upside group. And then the other 70% is in the middle and I think that most of the fintech companies are in that mid-sector. What, what does that mean sector is? That, that mean is that sector is at the end companies that have seen the revenues go down, down a little bit, but not significantly, or that have seen a part of their business go down, but another one go up. Businesses that maybe had a plan to grow 2x during this year, and now they're seeing that growth is coming, but at a lower pace. So something that, that has changed um, a little bit what, what they thought they were going to accomplish this year. And if you double click there, you implied that in your question. You have two things. On the one hand, everything related to remote usage, to digitalization, to the use of data, etc., is growing very rapidly and users are appreciating that a lot and whatever feature they had in that space is gaining in penetration. So like if, if you were, I don't know, doing online payments or online transfers, obviously the last thing you want to do today is to go to a physical bank branch and do something and touch the ATM and then go inside and wait in a long line with lots of people around. And people that maybe were doing that, now they are doing that online and they are learning to do it and they are realizing that there are many advantages on top of not getting infected. So I think that that trend is pushing the business today and will likely keep on pushing the business in the future. All this situation, in our view, is accelerating significantly all trends that we had towards uh, digitalization, towards online usage, etc. On the other hand, most fintech businesses have credit component. And that obviously, if the economy is suffering and many of the participants of any economy are suffering, being that small companies or enterprises or medium-sized enterprises or consumers, etc., obviously credit suffers. So that, that's kind of the, the balance we have in the portfolio. We have not seen any significant increase in default rates so far. That so far is important because if there's one word that we've all been using a lot lately is unprecedented. And clearly, this is an unprecedented situation. We don't know exactly how things will continue to behave going forward. But so far, 
at the very margin, default rates have increased in general, and also companies, because of fear of a significant change there, have basically pulled the brake and reduced the speed at which they offer credit. And even if they were great at assessing risk, uh, they moved up all their limits. So today it's more difficult to get access to credit versus what it was three months ago. So fintech is caught somewhere in, in the middle. My view is that there's no fundamental significant threat in the short term. So most companies will go through this, maybe at a slower pace versus expected, maybe through a more with a more cautious strategy because they don't want to risk too much. So they will grow probably less also because of that. But they, most of them will survive. And once this is over or once we get used to whatever is the new norm, I think everything will accelerate significantly, significantly, significantly because whatever physical financial services, financial income, et cetera, we're offering, I think it's even less compelling today versus what it was a few weeks ago. So for sure, I think that that trend will accelerate towards digitalization of financial services to the growth of online services for the financial uh, industry, et cetera. Is there a particular vertical within FinTech in Latin America that uh, you are most excited about? I think we look at everything. Probably lately, we've seen more what is called FinTech infrastructure. So companies that are trying to build different layers within the financial industry to connect different pieces. So you may have uh, different banks and uh, some companies are trying to create an overlayer to connect all those banks efficiently. Uh, there's data all around and there are some companies that are trying to create a platform to consolidate some of that uh, data. There are different payment players and, and there are companies that are trying to create the pipes to connect very efficiently all those payment players. Those are the things we've seen lately. So, and actually we've been investing in, in a few quite recently. So that's a sector I think will continue to evolve because once you start building a larger financial service, once the offline more traditional players realize that they need to be more connected, once there are more services around, I think the need for a consolidation of those different layers and interconnectivity in each of those products, et cetera, creates lots of opportunities for companies to try to build that. On top of that, I think that there are lots of areas around insurance. Insurance could be health, could be car insurance, could be even life insurance. I think that there are still many opportunities. Obviously, those are when you get into the insurance space, is even more regulated. So it is not so easy to just to launch a company with just by, by, by renting a few servers out of Amazon. You need some, sometimes an approval. You need a minimum capital requirement to be able to operate, etc. So it's a little more friction than the typical fintech business. But, but I think there are big opportunities, and we've seen great entrepreneurs uh, working in those areas. In terms of payments and lending, we still feel that there's a tremendous opportunity if you look at the penetration of credit 
in the region versus what it is in more developed markets, still a fraction of a fraction of what it could be. So I think that many players will find their niche there. And niche, I don't mean small market, but a different kind of angle to tackle different parts of the market. But individually, each of them are quite large sectors. Uh, so we think that, that there's tremendous opportunity still to come in around financial services. And, and set aside today's crisis and today's market valuations, and not because they are not right, because it would be hard to criticize the market. But if you assume that we are somehow in, in one of those swings, that maybe is it more extreme than what it should be in a more equilibrated situation and a more balanced situation. What you see is that the largest companies in the region are fintech related, or financial services related. Sorry, no, not fintech. They will be fintech, but today they are financial services related. And it's interesting because those are the largest. And one of the things we said earlier is that um, the penetration of financial services is small. So how come that penetration is not what it could be? Because I think that in, in most uh, markets, you could say that the market as a whole should be five times larger or 10 times larger and sometimes 100 times larger versus what it is today. But with that amazing limitation, because what banks and financial institutions today are going after is just a portion of a portion of what they could be going after, they are still some of the largest businesses in the region. So clearly, I think there's an amazing opportunity for new companies to be created with an intelligent use of, of technology, with a better mentality to try to serve clients, with more efficient products, with more customer-friendly products, etc. So, so I do think that the opportunity ahead is still gigantic. Definitely a significant untapped market, which is a, a great environment for an entrepreneur. So uh, before we go, do you mind telling us a little bit about some of the differences between VC investing in LATAM versus, say, a place like in the U.S. or London, Europe. You mentioned that some of the fundamentals are still there, finding that one winner that's going to make your portfolio. But how about, you know, under the cover, what are the main differences? Yeah, obviously, we learned a lot about Latin America, even though we follow what others do, we're not operating in other markets. So we have to be respectful of our lack of knowledge of what others do. But in our mind, one of the things we see that is different is that Latin America continues to be more unstable than other markets. That adds to the complexity of any business. Because when you're starting something from scratch, trying to disrupt any industry, etc. The amount of challenges that you have is gigantic. It's enormous. It's an Everest. And in Latin America, you have that Everest on top of a roller coaster. So, so the challenges are <laughs> exponentially larger. And, and that has kind of two, two ways to look at it. And we used to think about that in our Caribe days, in particular in our early days, that when we were doing something and things were working and we were hitting one goal after the other and projects were accomplishing whatever we thought they had to accomplish, we were saying, damn it, we should be doing this in, in the U.S. and by now we'd be Google. 
And then when we were developing our business in Latin America and things were not working and we wanted you know, project A to accomplish 10 and ended up accomplish one, or maybe it was even worse than what we had before and we had to go back and undo things, etc. And when things were very, very painful and were slower execution, etc. We're saying good that we're operating in Latin America because otherwise <laughs> if we were operating in the U.S., a kid from, from a dorm would kill us in a second because they would move at fast speed. And so it's more competitive in the U.S. probably, but it's significantly more stable. And even in, forget the U.S., China, right? I think that the kind of stability that we have in, in Latin America or the lack of is really outstanding versus what happens in, in other parts of the world. So that, that is one. And that what produces is that the market for startups is, is also more unstable. Obviously, if things go south globally and you hit a crisis like, the, let's say, 08, not to refer to the current one, market and, and investors become more hesitant, it's much more difficult to find a new round of financing and those kind of things. In Latin America, you have that. On top of that, you have all the local issues that you have every two or three years. So embarking in a project that requires lots of capital, that is very capital intensive, that requires uh, lots of investment to eventually produce something farther down the road, I think it's it's more difficult. So yeah, we have a, a obviously we're always investing for the future. We're always building something that for the next few months makes no sense whatsoever. And you're doing that because you feel that eventually with growth that will make lots of sense a few years from, from now. So it's not that you stop doing that, but you become more sensitive about what the amount of money invested before you start to see significant results. And if you start seeing things like that, maybe you keep on investing and investing, investing and accelerating its growth pace. So you keep on investing more than what you get out of it. But you need to see that kind of light at the end of the tunnel. So I think that in general, again, the amount of capital going into startups in Latin America has increased significantly over the last several years and has been increasing year after year. Maybe not this year in particular because of the coronavirus, but we think that will continue to increase. But you need to be more sensitive about capital requirements. Very interesting. And it's also quite interesting that Mercado Libre, your child, has become one of the top fintechs in the region as well, right? It's not just e-commerce, like like you mentioned, and it has expanded uh, way beyond that. Well, so it's a great, sorry, Miguel, just one, one final comment. It's a great example of what I was saying because we raised a round in the year 1999. Then we raised a second round in March, in May 2000, right after the burst. And that was a very challenging round to, to raise. For another day, we, we can talk about that. But with that capital, we basically financed the company for the following six years. Wow. And we went public in 2007, still with half of that round in the bank. So we were very capital efficient versus many of That's the incredible. stories that you read out there. And uh, yeah, the company did amazingly well. And as you well said, it became probably the largest fintech company in the region as well. 
for a long while we're saying eventually mercado pago will be larger than mercado libre eventually and now that is the reality incredible great well hernan we we have covered a lot of things and i feel that we could continue talking for a long time this has been fascinating um one last question that we like to ask to all of our guests is to hear a little bit more about your hobbies outside of work. Um, you know, how do you spend some of your time outside of Kazakh? Outside of Kazakh, I spend lots of time with my family. I like uh, reading. I like uh, running. I like sports in general. So I try to go to rugby, soccer matches, and, and I'm a big fan of sports. I like to spend time with friends, travel, go skiing with them. And try to keep a, an active life, yeah. but, but work is is also a significant part of my life, and I really enjoy it. And that's why I do it, and that's why I keep on uh, doing it for the many decades to come. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you again, man. Once all this crisis is over, you're always welcome to visit us on campus. Hey, thank you, Miguel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.